Hello, everyone, and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am, of course, your host, Cooper Wilhelm, and I'm so glad you can join us for today's episode in which I bring you the interview I did with Sam Van Aken. Sam Van Aken is an artist who is probably best known for his Tree of 40 Fruit, which is a living fruit tree of 40 species of tree grafted together into a single chimeric alchemical being. Very fascinating stuff. We had a long chat about his work and about his thinking and it is a joy to bring that to you and in keeping with that subject your plague magic minute actually has to do with a plant that via the winter's tale is also associated with the idea of creating some sort of beautiful hybrid natural thing so here is your plague magic minute Welcome to the Plague Magic Minute. As a public service, Witch Hassle will be doing short pieces of anti-plague magic every episode for the rest of the year. These are things to do, of course, in addition to following the evolving standard health guidelines and maintaining safety from a purely empirical standpoint. But you know, if you wanna to toss a little bit of magic on, as one might, I don't know, cayenne on something that needs to be cayenned, eggs, I guess, uh, then you know you should go ahead and do that. And so for today's example, we have something from John Battista della Porta's Natural Magic in 20 books, which was published in 1589. And he has a number of suggestions for things to do against the plague, some of which uh, I would not want to focus on because, for example, he mentions gathering ivy berries, which are in fact quite poisonous. But two that we might consider for ourselves include the water or oil extracted from the seeds of the citrone, uh, which is a very strong antidote against the plague, he claims. He also has a more elaborate procedure involving clove gillyflowers, and I'm, and I'm glad that he brings them up because the gillyflower is a strange plant. It is in fact a name used to refer to several different kinds of plants, uh, including Dianethus caryophyllus or Mathiola incana, and it is itself storied in its use in legal practices and traditions. Um, it was not uncommon in medieval feudal tenure contracts for the peppercorn of a gillyflower to be used as a sort of small nominal payment. And we also have a wonderful recipe from 1753's Cornish Recipes Ancient and Modern for Gillyflower Wine. So before I give you the sort of anti-plague recipe, here's a little wine recipe for ya. To three gallons water, put six pounds of the best powder sugar, boil together for the space of half an hour, keep skimming, let it stand to cool, Beat up three ounces of syrup of betony with a large spoonful of ale yeast. Put into liquor and brew it well. Put a peck of gillyflowers free of stalks. Let work for three days covered with a cloth, strain and cask for three to four weeks, then bottle. Very exciting. And I mentioned that there's a kind of chimeric nature to it. Because, you know, one of the things we talk about in this interview, uh, Sam Van Aken and I, is the idea of what is nature? Is there a boundary to nature? Do you put something outside of nature if you tamper with it too much? And this comes up in regard to the gillyflower in Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale, uh, because they were cross-fertilized by humans, and so there, there's a line, I have heard it said, there's an art which in their piedness shares with great creating nature. I'll not put the dibble in earth to set one slip of them. Uh, which is fun. It's a fun little thing. But anyway, John Baptiste Porta gives us this procedure for warding off the plague, uh, and it is one that is tied to the month of May, which we are currently still in for a little bit. So, you know, maybe go out and do this if you want to give it a go. I haven't actually looked up whether or not gillyflowers are poisonous. I should do that. Actually, through the magic of editing, I have. The petals of carnations are edible. The petals and, I think, fruit of Mathiola incana, also known as stock, which also might be referred to as gillyflower, also edible. But the wallflower, which is sometimes referred to as gillyflower, is uh, poisonous. 
So, so do not eat that, though apparently you can eat the uh, tender shoots as a kind of vegetable, so that's kind of nice. But you know, with all these things, by all means, I, I, I assume no legal responsibility and you should uh, do all your research before you eat anything that you hear about on this show. If I had a lawyer, I'm sure they would advise me to say that. Anyway, so, uh, onward. But here is that recipe anyway, and I mean, you know, there are so many plants that are called gillyflower, maybe pick one that grows naturally near you. Uh, but here is Delaporta's procedure. Gather some clove gillyflowers in the month of May of a red and lively color because they are of the greater virtue. Pull them out of their husks and clip off the green and then beat them in a marble mortar with a wooden pestle until they become so fine as they may hardly be felt. In the meanwhile, take three pound of sugar for one of the flowers, melt it in a brass skillet, and boil it with a little orange flower water that may quickly be consumed. When it is boiled sufficiently, put in some whites of eggs beaten enough to froth and clarify it, still stirring it and skimming off the froth with a spoon until all the dregs be taken out. Then put in the due weight of flowers and stir it with a wooden slice till it turn red. When it is almost boiled, add thereunto two drachms of cloves beaten with a little musk, the mixture of which will both add and excite a sweet scent and pleasantness in the flowers. Then put it into earthen pots and set it up. If you add a little juice of lemon, it will make it of a more lively blood color. We may also make lozenges and round cakes of it by pouring it on a cold marble. If any would do it after the best manner, they must extract the color of the flowers and boil their sugar in that infusion for so it will smell sweeter. Some never bruise the flowers, but cut them very small with scissors and candy them with sugar, but they are not very pleasant to eat. This confection is most grateful to the taste, and by reason of the scent of the cloves very pleasant. The virtues of it are these, as I have found by experience, it is good for all diseases of the heart, as fainting and trembling thereof, for the magrum and poison, and the bitings of venomous creatures, and especially against the infection of the plague. There may be made a vinegar or infusion of it, which being rubbed about the nostrils is good against contagious air and night dews and all effects of melancholy. So a very useful thing to make if you are so inclined, and also like, I don't know, Everyone's taken up some fun hobbies during this whole quarantine thing. Maybe making uh, candy from a 16th century book of magic and medicine is a hobby that you want to take up. So on to my conversation with Sam Van Aken. So I talked to Sam a while back. I've been kind of backlogged with the interviews that I have. And it was right as this thing, this this horrible pestilence sort of, sort of started getting going. And the way that we talked was I'm gonna I'm gonna give you I'm gonna you know pull back the curtain on the technology used in this a little bit. I called him on the phone using an app that allows you to record a phone call by actually putting you on a group call with a machine somewhere. So he and I were both in a group call with a recording device, and the recording device then sent me the recording afterward. This recording came out of a quality that is not the most easy to understand. So, you know, it's a it's a moment to really feel like you're, you're going back to the days of, of old-time radio, when sometimes the signal was not entirely clear. Though, honestly, the quality of it kind of reminds me of when I was a kid, and I would use one of those little handheld uh, tape recorders to record an episode of a television show so I could listen to it on the school bus, which, in hindsight, is a bit sad, isn't it? Maybe not. Anyway, uh, Sam Van Aken was lovely, and here is our chat, and I do hope you enjoy. So thank you so much for being on. Let's start with the Tree of 40 Flues, because I feel like that's, that's, I mean, that's the first thing I, I found out about you through. So these are, it's not just one tree, but it's many trees mm -hmm. with 40 different species of the same fruit grafted to a single tree, or maybe different species of fruit as well, or different kinds of fruits? Yeah, so they're, they're all stone fruits. So peaches, plums, apricots, nectarines, cherries, almonds, they're all grafted onto a single tree. And why, why stone fruit? Mostly because they're genetically compatible enough that they can, you can graft pretty easily from one to the other. There's a couple of things, but for the most part, it's pretty much just stick them together. So just that... So you're just using like traditional like grafting techniques of like someone like an orchard 
records had, would be using like 50 years ago or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So this is, you know, it, it's not, I think a lot of people when they initially hear about the project, they think it's some sort of GMO thing, but it's it's actually about 5,000-year-old technology. <laughs> So do you see this as kind of like a challenge to like genetic engineering or is this sort of of a kind but like the analog version to the digital? Yeah, I, it came from a couple different places. I mean, obviously the genetic modification part, I think, it's been really fascinating but then also incredibly horrifying for me. And sort of as the project has grown and I've learned more about just sort of like how we produce food, it, it's decidedly gone away from sort of employing hybridity and genetic modification because I think in many ways we're creating all these new varieties, but we really don't know what we have. You know, we don't know what we have or what we lost, yet we keep making new things. This sort of started, my understanding is that this grew out of you acquiring a few hectares of the What was it like? Because you grew up on a farm, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up on a farm. Like the, the project actually originated from a couple different places. I grew up on a farm, and my great-grandfather, who I never actually met, he, he made a living grassing trees. And I always thought it was, it was incredible when people would sort of invoke his name. It, it was always with the, the sort of notion of he knew how to graft as if he had some sort of mystical capability. And um, I, I always thought that was pretty interesting because, you know, growing up in an agricultural community where that's pretty regular, that was still something that was very revered. So I always had that fascination with grafting, but our farm was primarily a dairy farm. And after milking cows for, you know, that long, <laughs> I was eager to find the thing farthest from it, which was art. And so I went to art school, um, but grafting always sort of stuck with me. And then, you know, it, it sort of, I kept coming back to grafting, but at the same time I was doing all these media-based works that eventually led me into doing hoaxes, my own radio hoaxes, which, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Which, there's not a whole lot of longevity in hoaxes. It's not like you can really make a career out of it because as soon as, uh, you know, like the FCC and sort of things like that are quick to notice. But I, I went back to the idea of the hoax, and I found out that hoax comes from hocus pocus, which in turn comes from a line in the Catholic Eucharist where the priest says, hoc es senum corpus meum. And uh, he says it over the bread and essentially turns it into the body of Christ. And I was really fascinated by that idea, right? Because it's known as transubstantiation, and it's when the appearance of a thing remains the same, but its reality changes. And so that led to this, I was like, man, what's something I could, you know, kind of transubstantiate, you know, this ubiquitous thing, like the bread. And that ultimately led to, oh, I could do this through grasping. So that was really the origin of the project. That's amazing. You mentioned in an email that part of the metaphysical lineage of this project is also something like, say, Johnny Appleseed, mm -hmm. who yeah. was grafting, but in a way that was, I guess, forbidden. Yeah, so I mean, that's the interesting thing with grafting is that it has these, or maybe through the tree of 40 fruit, like I... I get a lot of interest in it from different religions. So it has this sort of metaphysical aspect, but then it's also considered that religious. So Johnny Appleseed, the reason why he planted seeds rather than grafted is because he was some puritanical denomination that you know, considered it against the law of God. So he spread seeds around. So do you think of yourself as doing something you know, radically sacrilegious, or do you... The, the religious aspect, like what is sort of the the metaphysical content of this kind of transubstantiation that you're doing for you? I mean, it's, it's interesting because, it, you know, I guess I don't think I'm doing anybody's work for them, but I, I like the fact that it's this metaphor that can be seen in, in different ways.
That said, I mean, I think the reason why I stayed working on this project for so long is that there is something that's beyond words, belief, description when the trees start to blossom in spring. Yeah. It's really kind of a, a transformative moment, but something more, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't really, you know, personally, I don't necessarily assign anything to it, but I like the idea that it's this metaphor that can move back and forth. So how many of these trees have you made? You've been doing this for nearly a decade or over a decade, right? Yeah. I, the first one got planted in 2012. And so, yeah, it, it started, you know, when it started, I, I was like, oh, this is going to be a three-year project. And <laughs> I'll be out of this thing in a couple of years. And then two years after that, it was like 2014, I was working with the USDA. And I, it, the project actually picked up a lot of attention. And so then I started, I got a call from the Department of Defense. And... You know, they, they said to me that food security is a major issue in the country and, you know, they wanted to know why I started collecting all these varieties and what my intention was. And it was at that point I realized that I had one of the largest collections of these fruits, at least in the eastern part of the United States, which at that moment, that's terrifying. I was like, I'm a hack, you know, <laughs> I'm an artist and, you know. This is a lot more responsibility than I had anticipated planning on for. And, like, really at that point, it became about preserving, you know, all these fruit varieties. I mean, you worked in, like, a, you, you grew up on, like, a professional farm. So how much is, like, monoculture really the norm with American agriculture? Which, I mean, you're an artist, right? I don't expect that, like, statistics are necessarily readily available. But, like, you know, and as a sense, like, like, how many kinds of stone fruit are you typically going to find across this country? in like a commercial grocery store or something like that. So it's kind of interesting. The history of it, of, of how we got these monocultures is pretty amazing. You know, so they started, I guess it was in the 1920s and 30s, a lot of sort of experiment stations were encouraging growers to focus on two or three different varieties of a particular type of fruit. Because when you're doing it at a mass scale, you know, you can manage all the same tests and take care of all the same problems. And then after the Second World War, when we realized that we didn't have a very solid food supply, if we were going to continue to fight world wars, which you think they would have been like, let's not fight world wars and we'll be okay, but well, that's, um, yeah, I know, it's like, that kind of logic I find just looks uh, mind-boggling. But then after that, that's when really starts to, to become industrialized. So, you know, New York State, which would grow, uh, you know, a bunch of diverse crops, they would uh, pretty much, in terms of fruit production, focused on apples at this point instead of, you know, instead of growing this diverse, you know, things that we would ordinarily consume, right? So instead we ship 40% of our produce in from California. And then, you know, there there is, you know, the, the farmer's market and organic. That I've been reading, like, I read the USDA website for statistics, and I think, like, uh, farmer's markets are something like 0.3% of all agriculture sales, and then, you know, like 6% of food grown is organic. That's real dark. Yeah, it's <laughs> I can get dark real quick. <laughs> We're talking about the earth, which is increasingly feeling like a dark place, but, you know, hope is a discipline and all that. So, actually, this brings up an interesting aspect of this. Cause remember, I, I feel like you and I talked about this, or maybe this is part of an interview I heard you do, because now everything is, is kind of crushing together in my memory. But climate change is, is having a very negative effect on, on, I think, especially orchards because of the, the way in which frosts and unpredictable frosts are sort of chilling buds or blooms. Have you been finding that these, these trees that you're making that, you know, I guess, like, say, four or five limbs will fare better than the others on the tree? Or is this, like, are you learning anything about sustainability in agriculture from these trees. Yeah, the interesting thing that I'm finding is that, so I'll have, you know, it, it doesn't happen every year, but it, it's 
almost like every third year now, we'll get this really warm weather in January and February, which in upstate New York is really, you know, that's uncommon to, to have 60, 70 degree days. And so the trees will blossom and then we get 11 or 12 more frosts after that that kills the blossoms. And what I'm finding is that for about five or six years ago, everybody was saying, oh, we'll be able to grow mid-Atlantic varieties uh, here in New York. And the problem is, is that due to that erratic weather, you actually have to grow varieties that are more cold-hardy so that they can withstand the warming and cooling. So varieties that typically grow in Canada are actually doing better here now. That was the so sort of the discovery along the way of it, you know, is pretty horrifying because for a while, you know, everybody's been recommending planting these mid-Atlantic varieties. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, about orchid grass. Um, mm -hmm. So correct me, of course, but like, so what grass is the piece you did where you, you grafted one living orchid to the stem of a second living orchid, and what would, what would generally happen? between the two of them. And it seems like these, these trees have already proved, like, once you get one set up, it seems to be doing okay, right? Yeah. Yeah. So was that the same for the orchids or, or no? The orchids, yeah. That was actually, <laughs> it was a difficult time. You know, probably bad to use other relationships. But <laughs> I, I took the scent and grafted their scent together. And eventually what happens with it is that one of them overtakes the, the other. It takes over the root system of the other. So it actually becomes a, a stronger orchid while the other one kind of dies out, perishes. So, huh, if, so two, two orchids are grafted together and then one of them essentially kills the other by the prize. Yeah. Does the yeah. other negatively then affect the, the other one? Like would, would say like having like say like a rotten appendage of one's former cohabitant do something to the other or does it just sort of survive? It's, depends on, you know, what happens with it. You know, for the most part, what happens is one starts to take the nutrients from the other. And they can go on in that state for a long time, but eventually it would suffocate the other flower. You know, it just won't flower. It won't won't produce anymore. Okay. Gosh, I've got to start, like, I've got to start ending on a higher note. <laughs> <laughs> You don't. You don't have to force it. I mean, I, like I'm a like I'm a poet, and like every time I try, I try to write a happy poem. Like it's just it yeah. comes out like this saccharine, like completely dishonest thing. So I don't. That might happen to something a friend told me about my natal chart. But anyway, what is nature? Is it is it static? What is the relationship between? Spaces and change in nature to you, or does that does that not enter into the definition of nature for you? Yeah, I mean, I I kind of look at this as the at position sort of it is agriculture, right? So more than it is necessarily nature, and and a lot of sort of the conversation for me has shifted to this this idea that what we know as culture evolves out of agriculture. Right? We don't that that's what plants how they care for things how to share that, and, and what defines value. And so, yeah, a lot of it for me, it, it actually has gone in a more social direction. Like, as I've been preserving these heirloom fruit, I've realized that I need to preserve all the, the practices, like the agricultural and orchard practices that go with it, and try to get that out. <laughs> it's weird to have an art practice that's largely turned into workshops, but I do a ton of workshops stuff. If people want to take one of those, would they just go to your website or where would they? Yeah, we're doing them through Green Thumb. So that's an uh, organization in New York City. And then we're also doing them on Governor's Island. And so I also do them through our local cooperative extension. So it's sort of here and there. But I'll be probably like two or three a month. Well, I mean, that's, I would be super down to take one of those months. Uh, quarantine is over, I guess. Or are you still doing them through the through the crisis? Actually, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna try to do one on April 6th, which is a. It, it's gonna be combined because there's supposed to be one this past weekend on pest management. Mm, big topic there. <laughs> but, but now we're just gonna combine them and make it a grafting and sort of pest management. 
And I think I'm going to, you know, we'll just do a live stream. That was cool. That was great. I will, so this is probably not going to go out in time for the back. I'll, I'll definitely make a, a, a notice about it somewhere. Oh, it's great. That'd be cool. It's fun. You know, it's, it's the, the thing I love about it is that I, I get an audience that's all over the map. So it might be somebody that who's hyper tired and now they're just really interested in trees or it might be an eight-year-old kid and it's everyone in between. Do you find that there's been more interest in the agricultural side of what you're doing or in the artistic side of what you're doing? Like when people sort of come to a workshop and they reach out to you, is it because they're like, this tree that you've made is beautiful or is it because this tree that you've made has taught me that I actually have a natural interest in preserving heirloom varieties or, or working with these living things? That's a good question. I think it's more people just want to know how to do it. Or, or just to, not even if they know at a technical level, you know, to be able to recreate it themselves, but more just a sort of interest in the whole process of it. And I think it's pretty interesting right? because it, it, I think we've become so distance from our food production yeah. that when we're starting to re-engage fruit trees or foods, it seems like it's new to us. And that, yeah, that's pretty horrifying too. The, the thing with nature is that I grapple with that as a concept all the time, right? Because what do we define as nature? If we say nature is a thing that is unadulterated by man, then there's really no place in the globe that we haven't affected. But if you think of it as a concept of, like, all of the ways that we're engaging, you know, you include us in that picture, and it's a more inclusive view, then everything is nature. And that seems too broad, too. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting as a concept, and it, I think it continues to evolve alongside us. Sometimes it includes us. I mean, there's that idea that, uh, I forget how this was phrased exactly, but ecology is part of nature defending itself. So you you did a piece uh, some time ago called Multiple Deaths of Wool and the Foe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you set up a series of television sets, each showing the loop of a different time in which a character portrayed by Wool and the Foe died in the film. Yeah. Yeah. How much do you think about recurrence? Well, it, it was... That piece was particularly, that was interesting to me in terms of, I've just seen someone die. When you see someone take their last breath, then that's it. It just stays ingrained on your memory. Like, I, I can recall that at a moment. And, you know, I was thinking, that's it, but we, we're constantly surrounded by violence. Like, if you turn on the television, that's just like a violence machine. <laughs> And so I was thinking, you know, and, and I didn't, at the time I made the piece, it's like William Defoe kept dying in, like, every movie. I'm like, is, is that how he gets cast? And so I was playing that death, the uh, actual scene, death, and then just sort of how it gets played out in fiction. Do you, it's interesting that there is this idea in some of your work a kind of modified inhabitant, like the sense that, in becoming, in becoming a kind of alchemical grafter, you're sort of, in a way, inhabiting a similar space to, to the grandfather you never met, right? Because you're, you know, he was also this, this grafter who was treated as a kind of magical figure to a certain extent. Yeah. Do you think a lot about the idea of, of the way in which individuals are sort of entering into these these sort of pre-established roles or slots, or is there a strong sense that if you're if you're making something like say a tree that is essentially even though it's a combination of different parts, it's still like a new thing. It's a very new thing because such a combination presumably has never been made before. Like how much does this idea of participation in roles versus the individual matter? I know this is an incredibly abstract question, but feel free to do it. Oh, no, no, it's dead on, actually. Yeah, I spent three years becoming uh, Richard Dreyfuss' character and closing down <laughs> I mean, it, it's very much on point. And, and sort of the whole premise for the piece was that, I don't know, I was kind of in my early 30s at the time, and, and I... Remember, uh, my dad actually took me to see that movie. It was like the first movie I saw in a theater. And I 
just, you know, sort of recently seen it at the time, and I was like, I wonder if we just become those first really important narratives, and that if we just carry those out the rest of our lives. And I, I think we really do very much live by narratives, you know, whether we're constructing them or we're borrowing them. And I also have a sense of, you know, maybe we're all just sort of actors carrying out our own script, and the problem occurs when our different scripts run into each other and sort of the dissonance. But, yeah, I bought a station wagon and threw out sideburns and tried to become Richard Dreyfuss, so, yeah. <laughs> so was, was becoming Richard Dreyfuss, was this like a piece you were doing, or was this just sort of like a, a kind of project, or do you only sort of look back on it afterwards and say, like, oh, that's what I, that's what those three years were, that I was becoming Richard Dreyfuss? Uh, well, I, I started with this, with the the idea about narrative, right? So I thought, okay, we become the narratives um, that we, you know, tend to carry in the world. And then, you know, so I bought the car, I bought the clothes, I drove to Muncie, Indiana, where the character was supposed to be from, and then followed sort of pilgrimage to Devil's Tower, Wyoming. I climbed Devil's Tower, I get on the other side, and the aliens don't pick me up, and I'm like, worst art project ever. <laughs> it was, I was like driving home all dejected and I got uh, into Iowa and there's, I just remember seeing all these windmills and I was like, oh, this is the project that's Don Quixote, right? When sort of the narrative that we're carrying out sort of fails. And so that's, the project then really became about, you know, trying to do the best I could to recreate, but ultimately, it, it does fail. Is that what you, do you feel like that's what's going on right now with the trees, that you're, you're recreating a narrative but also playing in the space where the narrative fails, or is this something completely off the map of that? Yeah, this sort of went in a, in a completely different direction. And actually, the interesting thing that drove the trees is just, it's more desire than a particular type of conceit that I had that I was attempting to carry out. Because with the trees, I I really started these because I wanted one, right? <laughs> I was like, yeah, so I, I just made it. And it, it was interesting because I thought the first time that I exhibited them, nobody's going to want these things. And so I made a whole bunch of prints that accompanied them. <laughs> I thought, nobody's going to buy a tree. This is just, you know, my thing, and I'll just show it. And um, yeah, uh, people did, and it's really respond to. How much do you think about response when you when you put together a piece like this? I mean, you are driven, you know, it's used principally by like just wanting a thing to exist that didn't exist before. But thought about to like how this is going to communicate or how this is going to be received. I, I think you have to at some point. When that is, I'm not necessarily sure. You know, because if you're you're thinking about it before and while you're making the work, I, I think it can be really kind of damaging. But then I think, you know, as the project goes through an evolution, right, as it continues to change, I think that at that point you really start to think about how others are receiving it. But, you know, at the same time, I, I don't know if I'm necessarily a, a very good gauge of that. There's some things that I think are really interesting with <laughs> people do not find interesting at all. Um, and there's some good things that I make that I'm, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm sort of tell about. And then, you know, people respond to it. So, yeah, it's interesting. Not to keep looking to the depressing, but how much do you think about bees these days? About what? Bees. Oh, God. Yeah, it's, I was thinking about bees yesterday, actually. <laughs> Have you seen the videos of hand pollinating that they do in orchards in China. It's no. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, they so they have people on ladders that have with brushes and they're brushing pollen into into blossoms. It's on YouTube, but yeah, it's that's just <laughs> it's horrifying to think that you know it, we had absolute colony collapse four or five years ago and fortunately a lot of beekeepers 
aren't getting the credit they deserve. Like they started to rebuild that population, but it was it was dire. Yeah. And and re- really, what it is is it's just because of pests. Yeah. It, it's, uh, and then the other sort of thing that I think was pretty interesting, and the reason I was thinking about them yesterday is that the more primitive varieties I have of fruit trees are self-pollinating. And it's only varieties that have been hybridized that you know, that require pollination. Really? Yeah, yeah. So I have like apricots that are, I don't know, 3,000 years old, plums that are they're probably older than that, but that that's the, the farthest they've been traced fast. And those varieties are all self-pollinating, and, and pretty much what I need to focus on is they call them Japanese plums, but Asian plums that have been hybridized with American plum varieties to be able to grow in this climate, they require a pollinator in order to, to get a fruit set. Pretty interesting. So forgive me, because this is going to make me... I mean, I'm going to reveal my ignorance about trees uh, here for a second, but when, when a fruit tree is self-pollinating, does that mean that the pollen just, like, never leaves the tree, or is that it gets picked up sufficiently by, like, the wind and proximity and things like that, that eventually it finds its way to some other part of the tree? Yeah, it, it pollinates itself. So whatever, whether that's insect or wind. And so in order to have a tree pollinate another tree, they have to be trees that both blossom at the same time so that the pollen can get carried from one to the other. Okay. What do you think about the symbolism of trees? Like, because, I mean, there's this sort of centrality to that in a lot of mythic systems as being sort of the spine of the universe, as being that thing which serves as a kind of meridian for all other. Mm-hmm. Like, it, so does that attract you to trees? Like, would you consider doing something like this with? I mean, you did the the orchids, but that seems to have been a totally different vibe because that was, you know, parasitology and sort of strife. Where this is, you know, I honestly these, these trees give me hope. Not to, not to gush, but you know, or be transparent with my feelings. But but things are good. Why am I saying? But that doesn't matter. Anyway, so like. Trees. Is, is it something about the central nature? Do you attracted to the symbology at all, or, or is it something else? No, no, absolutely. I mean, that that's what. Yeah, I mean, that is, and it is like the ultimate symbol. You know, I, I said that. You know, I kind of sidestep nature, but it is the ultimate natural symbol, right? I, I, so many myths emerge from it, and so I, I thought of the trees, like as a symbol. I thought of it as the beginning of narrative. Right. So I'm. It's something where I don't want to write the narrative of the tree, but I want to have that work that you experience that becomes the beginning of it. And so that's where, because trees form that central starting point of so many different stories. And so yeah, I guess that's really where it started. What's your favorite tree myth? What's one that you you think about a lot? Oh man. Um, well, that's become the. The sort of interesting part is it's really, I think over the past five years I've been trying to not just preserve all of these heirloom, antique, ancient fruit varieties, but I've been working to preserve the sort of history of them and the culture that surrounds them. And I think with peach trees in particular and just within Chinese mythology, it, it's just so fascinating. So in 2017, we had the solar eclipse, and there was this myth that if you collect peach branches in the middle of a solar eclipse, you soak them in salt water until the next new moon, and then you hang them from a red string, that they become magic wands, right? And they'll ward off evil spirits. Which is interesting because the branch from the previous year's growth on a tree is known as a wand. It's just generally just sort of in orchard terminology. And so I went to, well, I, I did two different things. One is I, I went to a spot that was directly in line with the solar eclipse. It was down in Kentucky, collected peach branches there. But then I also had a friend in Oregon collect them for me from his trees and ship them out to me. 
and maybe magic wand. So <laughs> the funny anecdote with this is that uh, CCTV came and they did an hour-long story on the Tree of Forty Fruit for this for a series called The Empire of Fruit, and I was showing them the magic wand and. I showed them the process that I was using to make them, and they, they looked really confused for a while. And then they had a discussion amongst themselves for kind of like two or three minutes, which is a long time when you're staying there. And uh, they come back and they're like, oh, people weigh zombies. And I was like, exactly. <laughs> zombies, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. I mean, you know, the evil dead, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what do these wands look like? Did you, like, because are we talking, like, do you kept these alive, or did you, like, make, like, the full-on, like, the stick with stuff carotized and so on? No, I, it's, so they're branches that have leaves on them that are crumpled by the salt water. And I just, you hang them in. So what they, they do in, in China is that on the, the New Year, the Chinese New Year, is typically when peach trees blossom just around that time in Beijing and Shanghai. And what they'll do is they'll take a peach branch and hang it over the door or create what they call peach panels, which used to be actual pieces of wood from a peach tree and they were placed on either side of the door. And now they become these really elaborate drawings and you'll see these like red posters that are hung on either side of the door on the media to keep evil spirits out of the house for that year. That's really lovely. Oh, gosh. When you work with these trees, do you ever get, like, a kind of animist or kind of, like, druidic vibe from them? Do you ever feel like this tree has a personality and I'm doing something to the personality of this tree by grafting other trees onto it or something like that? Yeah, I mean, they all have their own sort of habit, their own, their own way of growing. It's not like you can make the same tree over and over. And I don't know, like, I... <laughs> it's kind of strange, but when you spend this much time on one single tree, you get very connected to it. So even, I think I've made probably 20, 25 of these trees, and each one of them I know really well, and each one of them I go through it every year. And that's to just, to just go check on it and see how it's doing. And making sure it's doing well. Once these trees are grafted together, like, they're... They're basically, I mean, I imagine they take some tending as all, all plants take some tending, but for the most part, they're just like set, right? Like these are going to presumably survive you by quite a long time, what we think. Yeah, hope so. What do you imagine would be sort of the afterlife of these trees? Like as they keep going into the future, like do you see them joining? Because I mean, they seem to be mostly at sort of institutional ground, like, you know, on the campus of a university or something like that. Are any of these out in the wilderness? No, no. And actually, I started, so when I, I first started the project, it was really like, supported by art collectors. And it was great because they they really helped the project tremendously and kind of in its early stages. But at a particular point, I, I was like, there's so much work that goes into these that, and I was also having a problem because people that lived in certain areas would want to go see the tree, and it's at someone's home, and so uh, they couldn't see the tree, so I just shifted primarily to focusing on public spaces for the trees. And so if somebody wanted to get one, I'd be like, okay, maybe we could you know, find a public space for it. And, and that kind of guided the project over the past, like, four or five years. I know there's another part to the question I'm forgetting. Have you given any thought to putting these in the wilderness and just sort of letting them sort of put themselves oh. to a kind of benevolent neglect? Yeah, I don't... I have so many going all over the place right now. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. I mean, I really like that idea. Because at first, it, it really... The project started like that. You know, it was just me working on these strange trees and, you know, it would be in a yard or, you know, there are a couple other places where I'm studying them, but, you know, for the most part, then it just, yeah, it became public. What does the future look like for you? Do you think you're going to keep doing these trees for a good long while or are there other projects you're, you're itching to get your, your fingers going off? Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah, that's definitely what sort of the, 
I keep saying it's like my three years old, but it's probably more like five. The project now is that I'm really focused on is it's called the Open Orchard. And so it's going to be an orchard of 50 trees that grow 200 different varieties that originated or were historically grown in New York City. So we've, we've started, I, I kind of went a little overboard and started 300 trees that are currently on a nursery on Governor's Island. And what we're doing, once we plant the 50, the other 250 trees are going to go out to community gardens throughout the city. So it's going to be almost like a city-wide public art project. Then once the trees are established there, the other thing that I'm working on is a book on potted grass. And I'm thinking of it as, as this sort of... They used to have these fruit-growing manuals that were produced in the 19th century that described all the different varieties and where they came from and then how you actually grew them. And so I, I plan on putting all the information about how to create a tree of 40 fruit into the book and then just open source the whole project. So people will be able to go and get branches on Governor's Island and they could grass their own trees. Oh, yeah. That yeah. that's so hard. Actually, this, this brings me to a question, actually, that I had earlier and then kind of you know, got submerged. So you mentioned that you have, for example, one variety of tree that's 2,000 years old. When we talk about time scales of that size, like, and the idea of a, of a variety being a certain age, are we talking, like, are you looking at, say, historical, because, I mean, once we get to 3,000 years, we're kind of somewhere in the, in the area of history becoming more anyway. Is this yeah. looking like folkloric sources for that? Are you doing like some kind of like genetic mapping to see like when these species are branching off? Yeah, I would say it's it's definitely something that's more passed on and more folkloric. I mean really you know, the first sort of identifications of plant and fruit varieties are with Pliny the Elder. So that's you know, one hundred Christian era, right? So, but he had talked about varieties that dated back even further, and then so botanists, biologists would try to speculate which varieties he was talking about, and, you know, it's definitely reconstruction. And a, a lot of it is also based on sort of the history of how the fruit have traveled. So pretty much all fruit originates in China in different locations. And it isn't until they start to get dispersed through the Silk Road that they start to reach Europe and ultimately North America. And then so by tracing back where each of these varieties originated and the characteristics and traits, I, I know there's some people that are doing genetic mapping right now, but it's still pretty young as a science. So, it's, you know, I don't know anybody that's particularly doing it with stone fruit. I, I know they start to map out apples and trace them, but yeah, I'm not sure anybody's doing it with other fruits. So, but yeah, that, that's sort of how it, it gets built and constructed. So, for me, it's a lot of going back to reading agricultural reports from the 19th century, reading those fruit manuals, and then going back and even further, so reading sort of 17th and 16th century, they call them homological manuals, you know, reading those, and I really got into it, and then I realized that Somebody's like, oh, that's no botany. And I was like, hey, that's what I do. <laughs> that's fabulous. So we're, we're, we're coming up on an hour or so here, and I don't want to, like, be super greedy with your time, so I might I might let you go. But before before we close out, thank you so much for doing this. But also, are, are there any sort of parting words or thoughts you want to give to folks listening at home right now? Oh, God. I, yeah, take care. I mean, that's... <laughs> I mean, in light of everything going on right now, I, I mean, well, thank you. I, I should first start by saying that because it, it's good to be distracted from the current events for, for an hour. But, yeah, I just tell people, you know, please take care and stay healthy. It's, this is a really difficult time. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on. Oh, also, if people want, to learn about you or they want to learn about this project or other projects you're working on, where should they go? What should they do? 
Oh, uh, so they can go to sandanakin.com or also the Governor's Island website. And I guess finally, Green Thumb. And there'll be a list of workshops. We're going to be doing workshops from now into October once everything gets started. Probably for the ones we're going to miss this spring, we'll start up again next year. Amazing. Okay, thank you so much. This has been great. Yeah, thank you. And I'd love to get you out there for one of the workshops. I would adore that. So that's the end of the interview, but actually Sam and I kept talking for a little bit and he said something that he kind of wished he'd said in the interview and I was still recording, so here's that. Oh, cool. I have a whole thing about where the metaphysical begins when we reach the end of technology. That's sort of actually something I should have talked about in this conversation, but I think a lot of it came from watching my family and farm and there were times when we'd be in the middle of a drought and we had done everything that we possibly could and you know, seeing my family devastated and just this idea where we've exhausted every single technology that's available and the last thing that you do then is start praying, right? You, you reach out to metaphysical means. And I think that's very true, at least something that I found with the trees. Do you find yourself... Like as you're as you're doing these trees, like when you run into problems, you find yourself reaching out towards those sorts of metaphysical aims. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing with grafting is that if it if it fails this year, you know, <laughs> you always have next year. But I think it was a it's been a way for me to reconnect with you know I, I come from family of farmers, and it became a way for me to understand them, right? Because there's a certain point at which you've done all you can, and yeah, you, you work tirelessly towards an end, but at a certain point you've done all you can, and it's at that point when you start reaching out. Who do you, who do you typically reach out to, or is it just sort of a, is there, is there someone you have in mind when you're, when you're, when you're having these moments? Well, it's, it's funny because I, I largely remain agnostic most of the time. <laughs> but I, I, think the, I think the world is too wonderful, amazing, and just sort of extraordinary, that I don't think it's just by accident. That's how much I've applied. <laughs> I haven't gotten much farther with that, but at least to me, if you, if you actually start to look around you, it's an amazing, extraordinary place. Thank you so much to Sam. If you want to reach out to him and find out more about what he's doing, go to samvanaken.com or samvanakenstudios.com on Instagram, I will put up a link to the Governor's Island website where you can find out about the classes that are ongoing. I think they're they are mostly doing them now as remote classes, uh, you know, through the internet that you can watch on a video or something like that. So, you know, be sure to check those out because they are still happening despite the plague. You just can't be there in person just yet. Uh, hard to say. Thank you so much for listening. And also thank you to our, our supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash witchhassle. And if you have any questions about anything magical that you want me to do research on, go to witchhassle on Twitter, on Instagram, or go to cooperwilhelm.com slash witchhassle where there's a forum for submitting questions and things like that. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Witch Hassle. Our theme music was performed by Sebastian Baverstam and recorded by Edward Lee. Good luck with the work ahead. Mm-hmm.